I'm Parson Michael Maui, and this is Dharma Talks from Sacred Ground. Reflections and meditations brought to you from the Sacred Ground Community Church and Sangha. Today's Dharma Talk was originally shared on April 18th, 2021. I'd like to begin this talk by reflecting a little bit on Thich Nhat Hanh's words. He speaks of bodhisattvas, and in the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, as I mentioned earlier, that term was, as I understand it, traditionally used for a pretty select group, those who had come back deciding not to go into nirvana, but had had come back to this land to help others, being born again into this life so that they could be of service to others. And I gave the example of someone like the Dalai Lama. And Thich Nhat Hanh takes these ideas or ideals of Buddhism and he expands them. He makes them vast. You know, it's it's funny because a lot of people, they, they know Buddhism here in the West through someone like Thich Nhat Hanh. And they may not know <laughs> that Thich Nhat Hanh's elders back in Vietnam, they were frustrated with this guy. This guy's taking such an expansive, open view. And no, 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 you can't do this. <laughs> he did. <laughs> and then that becomes... Well, the New York Times said he's the second leading voice of Buddhism in the West and the Dalai Lama being the first. And, and that becomes then the base from which Western Buddhism grows. And I just think that's delightful. <laughs> and so part of what I want to do personally and what I want to invite you to do is to try to take that more expansive view, certainly of Buddhism, but of Christianity as well, and of the Judeo-Christian tradition as well. And he speaks of, in that first reading that I shared, he speaks of our interbeing natures, that we inter-are with each other. We live near the train tracks. You can probably hear the train in the background. <laughs> that refers to commerce and the world that we live in. I'm not separate from that train track. <laughs> and I sometimes refer to it as not just interdependence, but our fierce interdependence. And I was reading from another one of his books, Transformation at the Base, and I'm going to share a little bit with you from this in terms of a sense of that interbeing that we have with those trees that are bodhisattvas, but with all of the natural world. He's using in this book, he's, um, 
he's using the gardener as a metaphor, but just as a standalone, I find it lovely. So I'm not going to go much into the metaphor aspect of it, but just, just share what he wrote. This is from Transformation at the Base, and Thich Nhat Hanh writes, A garden cannot cultivate itself. A gardener is needed. When the gardener has plowed, hoed, tilled, sown the seeds, and watered the earth, the earth offers flowers and fruits to support the life of the gardener. The gardener knows that it is not he or she that brings forth the fruits, but the earth itself. His or her job is simply to take care of the earth. After the gardener stops working, the soil continues to work in order to help the seeds sprout and grow. Sooner or later, quite naturally, there's a breakthrough. The flowers and fruits of awakening will arise from our consciousness. Or we could say the flowers and fruits of the earth will arise from the earth. We have blackberries and cherry trees and raspberries and I just put some broccoli in the ground. Those will grow and as the gardener I have a role in that, right? But I can't do that by myself. It's me working in relation with the earth. It's, it's so basic, right? But I was thinking of the tree in our backyard. We have a black walnut tree and it's huge. We have a third story with a couple of attic spaces on our house. And the tree goes up above the black walnut. Now the thing is, I'm pretty sure some little human being, <laughs> much smaller than that black walnut is today, I don't know how many years ago, way before we moved in here, planted that tree and cared for it, that seedling or sapling, and now it's huge. So when the Lord is speaking in Deuteronomy, he speaks of this land that these people who for 40 years, you know, they've been wandering. Just manatee, you know, Moses doesn't even get to come into the new land. And, and then he tells them what you're going to find there. And he says... A good land, a land with flowing streams, with springs and underground waters, welling up in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land where you may eat bread without scarcity, where you will lack nothing, a land where stones, whose stones are iron and from whose hills you may mine copper. flowing streams, springs, underground water, valleys, hills, 
wheat, barley, vines, figs, pomegranates, olive trees, honey, iron, copper. In these little segment, in this ancient text, so much is shared of the natural world that if we could live in relation to, we can serve it and it can serve us. But the story also goes when you have all this, this land of milk and honey, you'll grow rich. And you might forget about, in this case, saying God, but we could say forget about the sacred. And I, I, I notice things in the text that I go, Ugh! like when I read, Keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. And we hear this word fear. You think of, oh, these God-fearing people. And when we think of fear, we think of terror. We think, think of being terrified. And this is one of the challenges with these old texts, and this is why, again, I, I invite you to try to just be the earth receiving the stories, because this particular word that's translated as fear could also be translated as reverence. To live in wonder and awe. I think of um, Rudolf Otto, who spoke of um, the uh, Mysterium Tremendum et Fascinan, this tremendous and fascinating mystery that we're both drawn to and kind of wary of. Well, that's true of the earth itself too, right? I mean, this earth that can give us so much that I can go out and be amazed by the wonder of the bird song. This earth can also destroy me. And so, I guess I'm inviting myself and in the process, I'm inviting you into like, we have these words like the fear of God and, and, and we repeat them and repeat them and repeat them. And we think, well, my gosh, I, I want nothing to do with that. And, and that's to me is understandable. But there's a number of different words in the old Hebrew text, and some of them do mean terror, but much more often, they're speaking of reverence and wonder. And even, I'll share this, at the end of this text, you know, you might have said, oh, this is okay, until Michael gets to the end of the reading. And it goes, if you do forget the Lord your God, and follow other gods to serve and worship them, 
I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord is destroying before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. I spoke of that expansiveness that Ty has. And we can look at this and say, ah, tribal religion. Here are these folks, you know, they're battling it out with the Moabites or the Hittites or the other groups. And it's just like, who has any use for that? And I, you know, I think of the great sacred in a vast way. I'm thinking, you know, whether one is Hindu or Buddhist or more of a theist or non-theist, I tend to think of it as all connected to the sacred. And, you know, we could say, well, you know, we don't worship, people don't really worship, they, they may not worship Yahweh or Jesus or whatever, but they sure don't worship any other gods, do they, right? I mean, we don't like worship, um, you know, Apollo and Poseidon and these old Roman gods. And this week then, I'm reading... Um, Robert Graves, and, 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 and Robert Graves is a great one for humility, which I'll say just a couple of words about humility here in a second, but he wrote this book, The White Goddess, and it, it definitely humbles me because I try to read it, and within one page he's mentioning like 20 philosophers and characters, and I don't know most of them, and so I, I don't make much progress with it, but I sometimes pick it up, and he wrote this in 1948, so over 70 years ago. And remember this here's, this, here's this story from Deuteronomy a couple thousand years ago, more than that, in terms of not worshiping other gods. And let's listen to what Robert Graves said in 48. Though the West is still nominally Christian, we have come to be governed in practice by the unholy triumvirate of Pluto, God of wealth, Apollo, God of science, and Mercury, God of thieves. To make matters worse, dissension and jealousy rage openly between these three, with Mercury and Pluto blackguarding each other, while Apollo wields the atomic bomb as if it were a thunderbolt. For since the age of reason was heralded by his 18th century philosophers, he has seated himself on the vacant throne of Zeus, temporarily indisposed, as triumphal regent. We live in the university district. A lot of people around here with advanced degrees, etc. I wonder how many people I would have to stop and ask this question. Do you think we're worshiping any of the Roman gods anymore? Before one of them would say yes. <laughs> I would actually adapt this a little bit. I think that Graves has it partly right, or maybe it was correct in 48, I don't know, when he says there's people are worshiping Pluto, the god of wealth, Apollo, the god of science, and Mercury, the god of thieves, I would add that it's probably more of a quartet these days 
and maybe it was then, because I would add Mars, the god of war. And as I think of it, I would put in the high throne of Zeus, not Apollo, but the god of wealth, Pluto. Because that seems to be the one who's kind of dictating science and thievery and war. So my invitation with this is for each of us, if we wish, and I wish to do it, <laughs> to read the sacred texts of the Judeo-Christian tradition with the same vastness that Thich Nhat Hanh is bringing to the Buddhist sutras and the Buddhist tradition. Thai says elsewhere, you are a bodhisattva in training. All around you are bodhisattvas. Those who in little ways or large ways are trying to add to the good. The tree in my backyard. What a lovely thing for me to go into my backyard today and say, oh my gosh, thank you. Because I do love that tree and it does add to the good in me. And you know, during this time of pandemic, I, talked to, I spoke of our dog Cookie last week. Our two dogs, Coco and Cookie? Holy cow, are they bodhisattvas? Are they... Are they adding to the good in me? How much laughter? How much joy? They start playing and wrestling with each other and I get out of my head. I get out of my worries. I get into their joy. I get into their play. One last thing I'll say in terms of this chapter 8 of Deuteronomy. Three times, um, God speaks of being humble. And I looked it up. Humility or being humble is mentioned 1.5. I think it's a total of five times in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But it's mentioned three times in this chapter. I think I have that right. Maybe it's five, maybe it's a few more, but just a few times, sitting like 300 pages in my Bible. Yet in this chapter, it talks about humility. And humility is such a tough one because I was thinking to humiliate is horrible, right? I mean, I, I and, and that is because you're putting yourself above someone else. But when we feel humiliated, well, that's awful. I, I don't disagree with that. And yet at the same time, we hold as some ideal this idea of humility. 
And then I think of humility as related to humor and to being human. And it's related to the humus, the rich soil. And I was reflecting on how much things have changed. You know, the Lord is speaking of when you get wealthy. In 1957, we hit a point where they suspect that almost half of the American men were by that point using deodorant. In 1927, when my dad was born, nearly half of the homes in America had electricity. And just a few years after he was born, they started selling toilet paper in packs of rolls in stores. My grandmother spoke of breaking the ice in Slovakia to clean the clothes in the cold water of the stream. We have in these 100 years grown so wealthy. but I don't know if we feel wealthy. And we certainly seem to be kind of dismissive, oftentimes, of the sacred. Although we do have those new Roman gods, new to us maybe, or maybe they're old to us. Ollie and I go for walks and we ask each other questions and um, she came up with a new question a few weeks ago and she said, what humbled you today? <laughs> Man, you know, I like what inspired you, where did you experience joy, where did you see magic today? That humbled one, though, is a little tough. At least for me. But I think it's worthwhile. At least for me. I'm Parson Michael Malley, and you've been listening to Dharma Talks from Sacred Ground.